and turn to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. We're going to read a lengthy piece of Scripture this morning, so if you don't normally follow along by looking at your copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to do it today because uh, we're going to be for a little bit in the Word. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, grab one of the ones under the seat in front of you. It'll be the same version, and you can follow right along. Esther chapter 5. We're going to read what perhaps is the pivotal part of the entire book of Esther this morning. Esther 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king, Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, 
For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. And then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robe and the horse, just as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me in my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the narrative stories uh, from the history of your people that just speak so many volumes to us. So there's so many lessons, so many things to learn. And so I pray this morning that you'll speak to our hearts as we think through these things. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God will make everything right. If not today, one day. God will make everything right. If you struggle to believe that, all you need to do is read this particular story. The events described here in chapters 5 through 7 took place over the course of just two days. 
and what a difference a day makes. For from Haman's perspective, day one was absolutely wonderful, perhaps the high point of his entire life. And day two, well, it wasn't a good day. What a difference a day makes. I want to do the same thing that we've done before. I think we've done this on every one of our uh, sessions on Esther. We, we want to look, first of all, at what happened, and then we just want to make a few applications from it. We could spend all day looking at applications from this passage. We'll just pick a few. But uh, let's look, first of all, at what happened. In chapter 5, we learn the events of day number 1. You, 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 you recall everything that's happened up to this point. I won't go into them again. But Esther had agreed to Mordecai's request that she go to the king on behalf of the Jews. She had fasted for three days. She had had the Jews and, and Mordecai and everybody fasting for three days. And now she boldly entered into the court of the king's palace. And I say boldly, for it's important to remember that she believed, she thought that she was truly risking very dire consequences, even death, by going into the, into the king's presence uninvited. Of course, we know she feared the king's response, but, but she didn't need to because God's sovereign work was taking place. God was in control. The king could do nothing against God, nothing against his people. Proverbs 21, verse number 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So she need not have feared, but she did. And then when she got to the king, the king saw her. He pronounced no such judgment as she feared, but rather extended a welcome and invited her to come close. And, and uh, he even let her know that anything she wanted, she could have. Her intention, of course, was to tell him right off the bat, I think, uh, that the evil Haman was who he was. She wanted to intercede for her people that were facing his death decree. So... She could have asked for his head right here, couldn't she? He just said, you could have anything you want. And she could have said, I want the head of Haman on a platter. But she didn't do that. Instead, she asked the king to attend a banquet, just him and Haman. And the king agreed and commanded Haman to join him in the queen. And Haman was no doubt thrilled by the invitation. At the banquet, the king asked her a second time, what do you want, Esther? What is it that you want? Anything you want, I'll do it. He used those words unto half the kingdom, and that was simply a way of indicating that he would give her whatever she wanted. It was just a a figure of speech. And again, she could have asked for Haman's head at this point. This is now the second time he's asked it, and she could have done it, but she didn't. Instead, she asked the king if they would come to a banquet on a second day, at which time she did say she would share her request with the king. And now we have to ask, don't we, at this point, what's the matter with her? What, what, what is she, chicken? Why, why is she so hesitant to reveal her real intent? Why not just out Haman right there at the first banquet? And for that matter, why, why a banquet at all? Why didn't she just tell the king right at the very beginning when she stood before him in the throne room? And, of course, I think the answer is quite simple. We've seen throughout the narrative that the story is not about Esther. The story is not about Ahasuerus or Haman or any of those. The story is about God. Esther was not directing this play. God was directing this play. The opening event of day two needed to happen first. She might not have known that, but God knew that. The recognition of Mordecai, a sleepless night by the king, all those things had to happen. And uh, that's why she delayed. God was the one who was delaying the great exposure until after the king had honored Mordecai. Well, so day one's first banquet was concluded. Haman headed home, and he was absolutely on cloud nine. I like verse number nine. It says he left the banquet joyful and with a glad 
heart. The word there indicates that he was merry, that he was joyful, that he was uh, absolutely uh, uh, euphoric. The New International Version says he was happy and in high spirits. And the New Living Translation paraphrases it. Haman was a happy man when he left the banquet. And I can just imagine that he was. But then as he left, what did he see? His old Mordecai sitting there, stealing his joy. And his euphoria turned to anger and indication. For Mordecai now had apparently moved beyond just simply not kneeling in his presence or bowing in his presence. Now, he didn't even stand up or recognize him at all. The, the, the text there seems to indicate he just ignored him completely. Haman went home to his wife and his friends, started to talk to them. And, of course, they once again put him into a happy mood. And uh, they listened appreciatively as he went through this big, long list of all his wonderful accomplishments. Did you notice that? I thought that was interesting. And I also thought it was interesting the things that brought Haman happiness and over which he boasted because they are the things that oftentimes folks today find happiness in. There's not a, not a one of them that we would point to individually and say there's something evil with that. But when placed in a wrong priority in our life, they certainly can be. He, uh, he boasted of his wealth. He boasted of his family. He had ten sons. We're going to see that in chapter 9. He boasted of his successful career. He boasted of his powerful position. He was second only to the king in absolutely everything. I can imagine this group egging him on and smiling and nodding as they listened to him brag about what he had. But then he thought again of Mordecai. And he said, there's just this one thing. Just this one thing. If it wasn't for this one thing, everything would be perfect. And I can imagine the smiles of his wife and the smiles of his hearers just kind of vanishing off their face. And Wait a minute. Haman is upset. And so they suggested a solution. Why don't you just build a gallows, Haman? I mean, you just got done telling us you're the second most powerful person on the face of the earth. Why don't you just build a gallows? Be done with it once and for all. And so Haman, of course, liked that idea. He set to work immediately. He must have uh, had the thing built that day because it was ready to go the very next day. And so the gallows, which we think of a gallows as, a, you know, a rope and hanging around the neck, the Persians didn't for the most part do that. They mostly just impaled people on a stake. And so this was most likely a stake 50 cubits high. Now, I did a little thinking about this, 50 cubits high. I got to thinking, how high is 50 cubits? A cubit is usually considered to be 18 inches. The distance between the elbow and the end of the hand, usually about 18 inches. So that would be 75 feet high. I, uh, I, I wanted to try to put that into perspective for myself. So I went out and I, I found this little app on my phone that um, will allow you to measure the height of a tree. So I came down to the church yesterday while we were cleaning up, and I went outside and I measured the height of our steeple. And according to that app, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but according to that app, our steeple is somewhere between 55 and 60 feet high to the very top of that. So add another 15 feet to that, and that's where the top of that gallows was. As Penn Jillette one time said, how much do you have to hate somebody? How much to do a thing like that? He really, really, really wanted to make an example of Mordecai. And so day one ended. Momentous day. Esther had bravely approached the king. He had kindly accepted her. She had invited he and Haman to a banquet they had attended. 
Haman had left that banquet flying high, wonderfully full of himself, believing himself on top of the world. Of course, there was a little problem with Mordecai. But once he explained all that to his wife, we thought it was all cleared up and figured out a solution to that. And as Haman's eyes closed in sleep that night, I can imagine his last thought. Maybe the last thing he saw as he looked out his bedroom window was that 75-foot-high gallows right there in his yard, which he had spent the last hour of the day overseeing the construction of it. I can imagine as his eyes drifted off to sleep, he had a smile on his face, thinking to himself, what a wonderful day. But what a difference a day can make. Because while Haman slept peacefully through the night, somebody else was experiencing a sleepless night. Chapter 6, verse number 1, that night the king could not sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but without question, I think that's one of the most amazing verses that we find in the Word of God. It seems so inconsequential, doesn't it, on its, on its face. The king could not sleep. He suffered from a bit of insomnia. Perhaps he'd eaten something spicy at Esther's banquet, and he had a little bit of heartburn. Maybe. We all experience things like that. We would not normally assign any significance to it all, but it was so significant here. That sleepless night changed everything. One person said, almost incredible circumstances point to God's hand guiding the course of events. The entire course of history for the Jewish nation was changed because a pagan king, hundreds of miles from the center of God's activities in Jerusalem, could not sleep. Now, what do you do when you can't sleep? Anybody in here ever had a night where you couldn't sleep? What do you do? I didn't have that one on my list. If I can't sleep, and sometimes it is because of heartburn, because I've eaten something spicy, I get up and take an antacid and go back to bed. But sometimes we have those times when we just can't turn our brain off. You ever have that happen? You just can't sleep. And so you lay there and you're not sure what to do. What do you do at a time like that? Sometimes you get up and turn on the television. Sometimes you think to yourself, and sometimes when it happens to me, not only can I not sleep, but there will be a particular name that for some reason is on my mind. I think, well, the Lord wants me to pray for that person. So I'll spend some time praying for that person. Next thing I know, I'm waking up the next morning. Sometimes I'll get up and read. I mean, there's all kinds of things we do. It's interesting to me. The king didn't have all those possibilities. I doubt he got up and turned on the TV. I doubt he got up and took an antacid. But he had all kinds of opportunities, did he not? I mean, good night, all the opportunities for entertainment and amusement that he had. He could have chosen anything to entertain himself during the night. So what did he choose? He said to one of his people, go get a history book and read it to me. Maybe, that, maybe he thought that would put him to sleep. I don't know. Warren Wiersbe, he explains why God, or why he couldn't sleep that night. He says, because God was at work. He says that Hashuaris couldn't sleep because God wanted the king to stay awake because he had something to tell him. Other historical sources confirm the Persians did keep extensive records. According to Herodotus, Ahasuerus himself kept extensive records, especially about those people who served him well. And so once again, we see the amazing providence of God. You know that God that's not mentioned in the book of Esther? You know that God that supposedly isn't here? We see the amazing providence of God here. Those tasked with reading history books to the king just happened to go and choose the particular volume and the particular chapter and the particular page that told how several years earlier 
a person by the name of Mordecai had rescued the king from assassination by uncovering a plot by Big Thana and Teresh. The king listened, took notice, he thought, hmm, Mordecai. I don't remember ever doing anything for a Mordecai. And he asked, did he ever receive any kind of a reward? And, of course, we wondered way back in chapter 2, how come Mordecai never received a reward for his wonderful service? And now it becomes clear. God knew the right time. The right time, right time for Mordecai to be recognized was not then, it was now. So while the king came to the end of this sleepless night, wondering what he could do to honor Mordecai, Haman was up early. Haman was up early and on his way, hurrying to see the king about what he wanted to do to Mordecai. When the king heard that his number one was in the court, he summoned him and he asked his advice. What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? The king asked Haman. And I've mentioned before that I think Esther is one of the funniest books in the Bible. I think there's so much humor and so much irony in the book of, of Esther. And here we see it. What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman, who must have been the most self-absorbed human being who's ever lived, thought to himself, it couldn't possibly be anybody but me. It couldn't possibly be. And so he told the king the things that he would most want done to him. And think about what he wanted done. His choice for what would honor him shows that even though he had more wealth than anybody could spend in a lifetime, he had more power than anybody in the world at that time had except for the king. It wasn't enough. He wanted more honor. He wanted more recognition. He wanted to be treated like the king himself. One commentator that I, that I consulted in studying for this said that he, he honestly believes that Haman wanted to be king. He was seeking the throne. I'm reminded of Satan's pride and his desire to be like God in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 13, You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That was Satan. It was also Haman. So Haman told the king what he wanted. And the king said, Good. Good idea. Do every bit of that for Mordecai the Jew. And Haman did it, every bit of it, to Mordecai. And all the city saw it. And when it was over, Mordecai went back to his place, and Haman ran home in dismay and disgrace. His family and his friends sat there and listened to his story. And, you know, these were people who believed in omens. They took great stock in that kind of thing. Now, this is a bad omen. Haman, this is not good. Uh, you're, you're in a bad way. And so whereas the day before they'd been building him up with good news, now they're tearing him down with bad. What a difference a day makes. While they were still talking to him, they came to take him to Esther's banquet. Day one had ended so wonderfully. Day two had started so badly, and it was only getting worse. Chapter 7, verse number 1, the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. The king asked her again, what do you want, my queen? And this time she finally told it all. I want my life, I want my people's lives to be spared. She was careful, you'll notice, to show proper respect. She said to the king, because he was the king, if, if it was just slavery, if it was something like that, I wouldn't have said a word. But it was death, it was annihilation, it was extermination. I felt compelled to intercede. And I wonder what Haman was thinking during this little exchange. Don't you wonder what he was thinking? 
Was his mind still reeling from the morning's humiliation so much that he wasn't really paying attention? Or was he feeling this rising nausea as he heard her words? (laughs) And he thought about where she was going with this. Either way, I'm certain he heard the next few sentences clearly. Who in the world, the king said, who in the world would dare do such a thing to my wife and her people? And I'm certain at that moment everything went into slow motion for him. And I, I could imagine that in an eternity of agony he turned his face and he just felt like it was just moving so slow to look at Esther. And he watched her beautiful face turn from the king to look at her. He watched her arm come up. He watched her finger uncurl and point at him. And she said this, the enemy is this wicked Haman. Wow. I can imagine those three words just bouncing around in his head. This wicked Haman. You get to chapter uh, 7, verse number 6, and I think you see one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible. He was terrified before the king and queen. But then maybe there aren't words. Maybe the language doesn't have enough words to convey the level of fear and terror and horror that flooded his, his mind right now. He knew his king. He knew the king's rage, and he knew he was a dead man. Warren Wiersbe has already pointed out, we've already noted that Ahasuerus was a man with a short temper. We've seen it over and over. But on this occasion, his anger must have been volcanic. I like that word, volcanic. His masculine pride was hurt because he had misjudged the character of Haman. He had made a fool of himself by promoting Haman and by giving him so much influence. The king had also erred in approving the the decree without first weighing all the facts. And as a result, he had endangered the lives of two very special Jews, Mordecai, who had saved his life, and Esther, his beloved wife. Haman watched Ahasuerus rise and stormed from the room, and he took the only chance he had. He pleaded with Queen Esther to let him live. As I think of Haman sniveling and groveling here before Queen Esther, I can't help but think of Grimma Wormtongue. Anybody know who Grimma Wormtongue is? Grimma Wormtongue in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. So powerful, so controlling until the king found out exactly who he was. And then he was a sniveling, whining, teary-eyed, snotty-nosed little toddler groveling on the ground. Haman. Well, that final act of Haman sealed his fate for in desperate uh, begging for his life. He fell across the couch, pleading with, <laughs> pleading with her. And just as the king walked back in the room, providence of God, the king's eyes were already filled with rage, but I can imagine they popped out of the sockets right now as he saw this wicked Haman lying on the couch, and he said, will he assault the queen while I am in the house? He was absolutely astonished. Beside himself with fury, and Haman was done. The king had them take him away, and as they were taking him away, one of his uh, servants mentioned, oh, by the way, there's a gallows in his front yard, 75 feet high. He was going to impale Mordecai on, and the king said, hang him on it. And only then, as Haman's blood ran down 75 feet of wood to the ground, did the king calm down. In my mind's eye, I see Haman writhing atop that pole, don't you? And I cannot help but think what a difference a day makes. Well, that's what happened. So let's ask ourselves what we can apply. And there's a lot of scripture here. There's a lot of things we could apply. But I'm just going to cherry pick a few 
things, maybe from the various characters that made up this story. The first is an application we might make from Esther's actions, and it would be this. Doing right is usually easier than we build it up to be. Doing right, it's usually easier than what we build it up to be. Warren Wiersbe, in his Be Committed commentary on this, makes an interesting comment. He said, what Esther did ranks among the great deeds of faith in Scripture and could have been recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, obviously, Mr. Wiersbe, who I respect highly, one of my favorite commentators, and I don't agree on this. I mean, he takes the opposite view. He does not agree with my interpretation that Esther was not a believer at all, or certainly not much of one, and that while she was a patriotic hero, she wasn't a hero of faith. I mean, think of some of the heroes of faith that might be in Hebrews chapter 11. People like David. David, who, facing Goliath, said, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's faith. That's faith in God. When Paul was reeling to and fro on the deck of a ship tossed by colossal winds, when all those about him thought that they were, they were, they were done, there was nothing, no hope, they were going down. Paul said, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I Believe God that it will be just as he has told me. That's faith. Nothing like that seen here in Esther. What she did was brave. It was wonderful. It was patriotic. She gave no mention, no no glory to God in it. (coughs) Many a heathen has acted bravely and patriotically. Our history is filled with heroes who uh, didn't know God. I think Esther might be one of those. And actually, I think Wearsby's comment bolsters my point of view more than his own. Why wasn't she in Hebrews chapter 11? If she's such a wonderful example of faith, there are far lesser examples of faith there than this. The absence, I think, provides more evidence. But, but think about this. Whether, whether she was an example of faith or not, whether what she did was done out of faith to God or not, there is still a wonderful lesson for us in it. She had built up the danger of approaching the king. It was a very nearly suicidal approach to him. Uh, It was very nearly suicidal to approach him unannounced, at least she thought. She walked into that hall toward his throne room thinking she was very likely taking her last steps. She said, if I perish, I perish. And then when she got to him, it was like anticlimactic. It was nothing. Oh, hi, Esther. What? I was uh, blessed as a teenager and a young adult to have all four of my grandparents alive and healthy in my life. I love my grandfathers. My mother's father especially was dear to me. He taught me to golf. And those of you who have golfed with me probably think he was a pretty crummy golfer. But he actually wasn't. I just didn't learn very well. He gave me a car when I was a teenager, which made me even more endeared to him. 
But as a Christian, I was always bothered by something, and that was I wondered if he was saved. And I always felt like I ought to talk to him about his soul. He didn't go to church. He didn't give any evidence of salvation in his life. And so I was always worried about it, but I, I just, I just never could do it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it, and, and I couldn't bring myself to do it for the same reasons that we oftentimes struggle. We think people are going to reject us. We think it's going to be something bad, and and doing the right thing is never as as difficult as we think it's going to be. But we build it up in our brain. Well, my grandfather got older and older, and then there came a day when he got sick. There came a day when he was dying. And that quiet little voice in my brain became kind of a shout, you need to talk to him. And I remember sitting in the hospital room with him, laying there. He looks so tiny, as I recall. I remember the sound of machines whirring away. And finally, I don't know where it came from, finally I heard myself saying, Grandpa, if you don't get out of here, which it was obvious he wasn't going to get out of here, if you don't get out of here, if you die, are you going to go to heaven? Are you saved? Do you believe in Jesus? And he looked at me with a smile, just as calm as can be, and he says, sure, I, I, I do believe. And, of course, I've had people say that to me before that are just sloughing me off, but he wasn't. We talked about it for a little bit, and I, come to, I, I left that room rejoicing and happy and thanking that my grandfather really did know Jesus as the Savior. Now, why he never went to church, that kind of ticks me off to this day. But... You know, people ought to think about the effect their lack of living for Jesus has on their family, especially their believing family, who look to them and think their whole life that they're lost, and then they've been saved. They're just lousy Christians. But I don't want to get off on my grandfather that way. Here's the point. Here's the point. Doing right and talking to him about the Lord was much easier than I'd build it up to be. And that's one lesson that I think we learned from Esther. She thought it was going to be terrible, and it wasn't. Do the right thing, Christian. It'll be easier than you think. Do the right thing. Well, here's another lesson. God does not forget. God does not forget. And of course, this is an application we might make from Mordecai, who had done the right thing years prior in, in, uh, in, in saving the king's life and turning in these people who were trying to assassinate him, and, and he had seen absolutely no reward for that sense. We can't read the first three verses of Esther chapter 6 without being reminded that God does not forget, that his timing is perfect. Matthew 16:27 says the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. Revelation 22 Behold I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Galatians 6:9 Let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God had not forgotten Mordecai whether he thought he had or not. He had not forgotten his people and he has not forgotten you. He'll never forget you, Christian. God never forgets. Here's another lesson. This is one we might make from Ahasuerus, the king. Everything in our life has a purpose. Everything. Even our sleepless nights have meaning and purpose in God's design for our lives. This entire story, this amazing deliverance of God's people described, hinges on one night when the king could not sleep. God had kept him awake. There was purpose even in his sleeplessness. God wanted him to get up and read a book. 
I'm amazed at that. Do you view everything in your life as being from God? When setbacks come, do you fret? Or do you ask God what he wants from it? When God seems to stop you dead in your tracks and you're not moving in the direction you think you ought, do you become frustrated or do you seek his direction? When you can't sleep, do you toss and turn, mentally cry out in angst over it, or do you pray and ask God what he wants you to do rather than sleep? Do you get up and read his word? Maybe that's what he wants to do. Those times are great opportunities to do just that. You never know what God will do with those random moments and events, even something like a sleepless night. But we do know that he is working, always. Everything in our life has purpose. My times, the psalmist said, are in his hands. Your times are in his hands. Here's another one. This one comes from Haman, and we could get a lot of them from Haman here, but here's another one. Pride goes before fall, and judgment always comes for wickedness. Always. And this is, of course, the greatest application we might make from Haman. Several verses come to mind. Be sure your sin will find you out. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. The righteous is delivered from trouble. It comes to the wicked instead. Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. What is it you think you're getting away with? What is it? You won't. Let Haman remind us all of that. Things can change in an instant. On day one, here was Haman happy and giddy and, and, and joyful. And on day two, he was dead, writhing on a pole. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 7 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows that, he will also reap. And finally, one last application, one last lesson, again from Esther. When we are all in for God... He does amazing things. When we are all in for God, he does amazing things. We, we saw the, the, the slideshow of, of Vacation Bible School from this past week. And I mentioned just briefly how I'm always amazed and impressed and thankful and thrilled watching how much little kids enjoy themselves. But for this last week, I watched a handful of people pour their lives into this little group of children. And, you know, the church in America has, has, has some wonderful things about it, but it also has some things that just plague it. And one of those is apathy. One of those is lack of involvement. M many people who name the name of Christ, who attend churches in America today, never get involved in any way with actually doing something for God, with actually serving God in some capacity. Rather, they just spectate. Now, I realize sometimes that's all God wants from us. Sometimes he wants us to just sit and soak and maybe heal. Maybe there's some reason that he just wants you to rest for a while. But when we go from being spectators to participants, wonderful things happen. Some saw it this week in VBS. Yeah, their lawns didn't get mowed. Probably. Their houses probably were a little bit more disheveled than normal. They probably had to say no to some other things in order to have time to be here. 
to say yes to God, but look at how God moved this week. You see, Esther went from being a spectator to being a participant. And God moved mightily. And she got to see it. Don't minimize that last part. She got to see it. I mean, think about that. You know, we read this story now with joy and with wonder, but imagine what it was like to sit there, to see the look on Haman's face, to see the rage in Ahasuerus, to see, even if you didn't even believe in God, the wonder and astonishment that all these things were coming together to accomplish this tremendous deliverance of his people. I'd be surprised if Esther didn't believe before. I don't know how she didn't believe after that. I don't know how. doesn't say she did, but boy, I'd be surprised if she didn't. When we are all in for God, he does amazing things with us and for us. We started out, I'm going to end the same way, when we first started this, this series, I quoted from this, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is the ruler yet. What a difference a day makes. God will make everything right. If not today, one day. Well, let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for this uh, beautiful story in the book of Esther. We're so thankful for the, the fun of it. We're so thankful for the humor of it. We're, we're so thankful, Lord, that, that in spite of, of people of immense power, you were uh, toying with them because you are so in control. And, Father, we just praise you for that. May we learn from these things. May we learn from the characters. May we learn from the providence of God that was so obvious. May we, may we look at, at this and see that you are working in our lives every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year until you call us home. May we see your guidance. May we understand you are directing us just the way you want us. And may we be obedient. May we learn from Esther that doing the right thing is usually easier than we expect it to be. May we learn from Haman that our sin will find us out. And, Lord, if there's anybody who needs to deal with something, I pray they would this day. May we learn from all these. May we apply it to our lives. And I pray, Father, especially if there's anybody here who does not know this God, this amazing God that is able to do this, that is able to have complete control over all in whose hands are all of our times. Lord, I pray this day they would. I pray they'd come to know Jesus as Savior. I pray they'd uh, trust in him. And though we didn't talk specifically about that gospel today, I pray somewhere in what we've sung or somewhere they've heard it. And I pray this day, Lord, that if they have further questions, they'll step out and come forward and let us answer them. So as we close our service with song, would you help us to think through these things, apply them to our hearts. If we need to make any decisions or changes or Uh, We need to pray about anything. Lord, may we know the altar is open. People can come and pray wherever they are. But, Lord, may we be changed by this and made more like what we ought to be by this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.